There, I believe we got it now. All right. So, Mark asked me last week to take the class because he wasn't sure he would be back, and he said he might be back in time, and he'd just slip in and sit on the back, and I told him just to come on up front and teach the class. And he uh, declined. He said that I was prepared, and I should go ahead and and do it. So we'll do it, and I appreciate the opportunity, actually, and uh, we uh, look forward to uh, discussing some things from, from God's Word. Mark told me that I could pick up at Acts 1, verse 9, Or I could do something else, do whatever I wanted to do. And I got to thinking, you know, if I started Acts 1 verse 9, I'm probably going to cover a half or a whole chapter and then Mark's going to come back and recover it anyway because there's going to be lots of stuff that he wants to (laughs) dig into. And and I told him right right off the bat, I'm not qualified to do a word study. So we'll uh, we'll actually do kind of a, a, I hope, a unique look at the book of Acts. And we're going to discuss Acts as a textbook. Randall? Don't get up and run out just because I said textbook. <laughs> I told him before class I was going to pick on him, but uh, he likes it. Don't let him fool you. Um, we're going to talk about it. And so actually, I've got one slide at the end that kind of talks about the book of Acts as a textbook. Most of the time, we're going to spend the time building the case kind of for Acts as a textbook. So we'll approach it that way. I always like to throw this in uh, when I uh, talk to veterinary students. Um, you know, it's Steve Jobs who, of course, you know, cr- uh, created Apple and the Macintosh, and and so we can thank him for the iP- iPads and iPods and iPhones and all that stuff. He used to tell people that work for him that if you need slides, you don't really know what you're talking about. Just come in and make your case. Just come in and tell me what it is that you want to do. And I make this point with the veterinary students. It's, it's like, you know, I can stand up here for an hour and talk about, in this case with veterinary students, pigs. <laughs> I don't need slides. But they do, you know, it's an expectation in today's world. People, you know, for a lecture or professional presentation, slides are kind of expected. The other times that I've spoken here, I've not used slides, but I decided tonight I would go ahead and use slides. And hopefully it doesn't mean that I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, hopefully we'll, uh, we've you know, looked at uh, the material enough and, and understand enough what's going on that uh, old Billy's coming up here to fix something I'm doing wrong, I'm sure. Yeah, this, I don't like, this thing is way far away from the audience tonight, so is that all right? So I'm going to start off, and I probably should start off too by telling Mark he can't answer any questions. That's what, <laughs> so this past year when I uh, was teaching the, the veterinary class, uh, the third year class at Auburn, my son was in that class and he's been around me all his life and I told him he couldn't answer any questions. So we'll start off. And the other thing is, you know, in a class like that, there's 120 or 130 people and you really can't interact much. It's too many. Um, in a small group, I, I prefer to do what I call the modified Socratic method. Uh, some of y'all, some of y'all are teachers, and you know what the Socratic method is. And we don't really do the Socratic method in the U.S. The Europeans do. I mean, I, you know, you go to international conferences and stuff, and and scientific conferences, and they challenge each other, and they're kind of rude about it sometimes. In the U.S., believe it or not, we're too polite, and the Canadians are very polite. So 
we don't we don't challenge. We just kind of it's a question and answer thing, and that's kind of that's why I call it the modified Socratic method. Um, the whole idea really is um, to make you defend a position. That's the true Socratic method. It's to challenge your way of thinking. But uh, we're not going to really do that. But I am going to throw some questions out there. I'm going to ask for audience input. And so it could be a very short class, or we might go all the way to the bell. It kind of depends. So who wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else? Paul. Paul wrote more books of the New Testament than anybody else. Who wrote more words of the New Testament? Luke. Luke wrote more words than anybody else. Luke wrote uh, close to 38,000. Now, this is going to vary, obviously, depending on the translation and the language, but this is close enough. You know, Luke wrote close to 38,000 words, Paul about 32, and John about 28. So those three writers wrote about over two-thirds of the New Testament. But we're going to focus on Luke. We're going to talk about Luke because that's, we're going to talk about the book of Acts eventually. <laughs> so Luke, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke at about 19,000 words. He wrote the book of Acts at about 18,000 words, or a little over, just over that. So he's the most prolific in number of words of the New Testament writers. What else do we know about Luke? Say that again. He was a physician. What else? Well, he was probably a Gentile. If he was, he's the only Gentile writer of the New Testament. All the rest of them were Jews. So, we, I mean, we deduce that he was a Gentile from Colossians 4, verse 11. Because uh, Paul talks about, he names those who are of the circumcision, who are with him, the Jews who are with him, and he does, and then he later mentions Luke. Uh, Paul calls him in Colossians 4.14 the beloved physician, so we know, he, we know he was a physician. We know that he became a fellow worker with Paul, Philemon's uh, verse 24. We know he was with Paul at the end, from 2 Timothy 4 verse 11. And then we know what Luke himself told us from what's called the we passages of the New Testament that Mark will get to sometime. <laughs> so we know from the language as it changes, and it'd be prior, or really prior to and then in between these passages, Luke talks about they. And then in these passages, he talks about we. So... 16, uh, 10 through 17 is part of the second missionary journey. 25 through 21 is part of the third missionary journey. And then the last part of uh, the book of Acts is Paul's journey to Rome. And then we know again from 2 Timothy that Luke was with him in Rome at the end, or towards the end. And that's about all we know about Luke. Uh, one of the commentaries that I looked at talked about Luke being an obscure character. Uh, he wrote more words than anybody. <laughs> the longest gospel, the only real history of the early church from an inspired source. So why was he obscure? Well, he was saying he was obscure in that we don't know anything about him from secular writings. 
Um, that's what we know about him right there, pretty much. Okay, for whom were Luke and Acts written? Who did Luke write those books for or to? You know, probably talked about I've, I've been traveling a lot this summer and fall. I've been out of town a lot. I have not been able to be here every Wednesday night. You may have talked about this already. And the one of the maybe the early the introductory one, but who who did he write to? Theophilus. Specifically, he wrote to a man named Theophilus. So, who was Theophilus? Well, we may be done about seven o'clock, Mark. You may lead some more songs. (laughs) Don't be shy. Well, Theophilus, the name itself means one who loves God. And so there's some speculation that Luke was writing the book of Luke to those who love God, that it was a general term. But most commentators think that's not correct. Okay, that Theophilus was an individual, a real person. Um, He calls him at one point most excellent Theophilus. What What does that mean? I refer to him in that way. He was tried as a Christian. Yeah, yeah. As what? I'm sorry. Respect. Yeah, yeah. He was. He was. Um, Luke thought highly of him. He called him most excellent. The other thing that may be going on there is he may have actually held a, an important position in in the Roman government. Or a, a more of a societal position, I should say, not a not a governmental position, but more of a societal position. Um, so that that may be why he uses that terminology. But the interesting thing to me, for the purposes of tonight, is that Theophilus was possibly and even likely a patron or a benefactor, a supporter the publisher or the distributor of Luke's writings. He was the person that Luke depended on to kind of fund some of his work, you might say. Um, so he's reporting back to him, kind of. In, in, in the, now, obviously, he wrote the books for, specifically at that time, the Gentile believers. But ultimately, he wrote, it, he wrote them for all of us. You know, so we, we all benefit from Luke's writings, and, and he wrote it with the long-term goal of everyone benefiting. But at that point in time, it was specifically to Theophilus and then to be passed on to the other uh, Gentile believers. Okay, so we're going to move from Luke to Acts. We're going to talk a little bit about the book of Luke and then move on to Acts, which is our primary goal, primary purpose tonight, is to discuss the book of Acts. But uh, Luke itself was written for Greeks, so if you think about the Gospels, you know, Matthew was written primarily for Jews, and he emphasized Jesus as the Messiah, the one who had been sent. Mark, written primarily for Romans, and, and he emphasizes more of Jesus' deity, and his is the book of action. And John is more of the book of teachings, and written again emphasizing Jesus' deity. 
But Luke emphasizes his humanity, the son of man, and, and the fact that um, he was human. Not that he neglects the others either. I mean, those are generalizations of all those Gospels. But it was written for Greeks and emphasizes Jesus' humanity. But in Luke 1, verse 1, and this is kind of the, the transition, I guess, or the, from Luke to Acts that I'm, I'm trying to get at here. In Luke 1, verse 1, he uses the word diegesis. Mark knows what it means, but, uh, well, I put it up there. Diegesis. It's a Greek word that means narrative account. And in fact, um, well, I, I jotted them down. I don't remember which translation uses which word, but I think the ESV uses narrative. I think King James, I, I don't remember. Now I'm, I'm getting them mixed up, but th- you can look at the different translations and they'll say either narrative or book or one of them says history this i wrote this history and then in acts 1 verse 1 he references back to that he calls it the former treatise in the king james version and then in the esv he just simply calls it the first book i kind of like former treatise myself (laughs) most of the time i like the simpler language of the more modern translations, but in this case, I, I like treatise. So, what is a treatise? An account. Yeah, a story. Any anybody else want to? I mean, that's correct, but I've got a actually a much longer definition of treatise. <laughs> What do you think about what I think about when I hear treatise? A dissertation, a scholarly work, a formal well as the definition says, a formal and systematic exposition in writing the principles of a subject. And here's the point, generally longer and more detailed than an essay. So if you get into, you know, all your English stuff, you know, an essay is this and a treatise. And that's an old word we don't use much anymore, but I, I like it in this context. This is the this is something that I'm going to give you a lot of details and I want you to understand it, basically is, is what Luke is, uh, is saying. Okay, so we'll digress just a second here. And so we all know that, you know, the, the books of the Bible weren't written with chapters and verses. But when were they added? So I'm kind of, I guess, building, you know, the case for Acts as a textbook. Um, Luke didn't put chapters in. Most textbooks would have chapters, but most don't have verses. <laughs> when were chapters and verses added? Well, it wasn't necessarily an instantaneous process, but I think in general, and Mark can correct this if I'm wrong, or, but you know, Stephen Langton is kind of credited with putting the chapters in the Vulgate in 1205, and this guy, Robert Estein, putting verses in in the 1550s, roughly. So, a long time after the writing of those books. And so I guess, you know, the point I'm driving at is these were truly books, not letters like Paul wrote, but books. Unlike... The other New Testament books, Luke and Acts, very well may have been written for the book market. And that, when I first read that, that kind of took me by surprise a little bit. And I thought, 
But you know what's different about having a book market? So you've got Theophilus who's supporting his work. He's, there's Theophilus who's helping him. He's helping him get published. He's helping him distribute the books. What's different than, you know, we go to Polishing the Pulpit and we've got folks there with books for sale. <laughs> Most of them aren't making a great living selling books. They're selling the books because they support the work they do spreading the, the gospel. And... I mean, there are a few exceptions to that, of course, and a lot of the really, really popular book writers, I think, kind of begin playing to their audience and go off the deep end. <laughs> but these were books that may have been written, really, to be, to be sold. Again, probably not at a great profit. But they were scholarly works, and Luke regarded them that way. He was a scholarly person. We're going to talk a little bit more about Luke. So what are the unique characteristics of Luke's writing, particularly in Acts? So I think this will kind of support these ideas that you know, Luke's a scholar. He's a physician, but Luke's not just a physician. And we'll get to that. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Um, what's unique about Luke's writing? If you think about him in comparison to Paul, Matthew... Mark, John, whoever. And there's going to be some overlap, of course, but yes, sir. He's more detailed than a lot of his descriptions. Absolutely. He's very detail-oriented. And that probably somewhat goes along with being a physician, but it may just be his personality, too. Luke's a detailed person. May have been what encouraged him to get into medicine. He must have wrote with red ink a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he wrote the red words. <laughs> That's a joke, if anybody didn't hear it. Jeff said he used a lot of red ink. Well, there's several things about Luke's writings that are unique. Uh, there's really no other continuous record of how Christianity expanded during that 30-year period that Acts covers. From Jesus' death and resurrection until Paul got to Rome. It's 30 years, and it's pretty much chronological. It's, what, 28 chapters, if I'm remembering right? It's not, it's not really one year per chapter, but <laughs> it's, it's almost chronological. It's pretty much just chronological. So we just don't have another record like that. Um, he's been called, and I like this term too, he's been called the theologian of salvation history. Nobody else really describes salvation history like Luke does. He uses culturally correct language. I didn't say politically correct language. I said culturally correct language. When he's writing about stuff that happened in Jerusalem or in a primarily uh, Jewish area, he uses Aramaisms, you might say. He uses some terminology that would be familiar to that area. When he's talking primarily about stuff that happened um, in the Roman world, he he uses that kind of language primarily. So he kind of uses language that fits with the culture that he's addressing. And then Bill mentioned the level of detail. Um, he is, he, so when it comes to government, he's the only New Testament writer who so much as even names a Roman emperor. The rest of them talk about Jewish officials. 
Luke talks about Roman officials. And then he also talks about the lower level officials, provincial governors, kings, magistrates, other local officials, and he does it with extreme accuracy. So you go to historical writings and find the same terminology and stuff. So he's very detail-oriented. And then he's very detailed about his travel conditions. One uh, commentary said that Paul's journeys in Asia Minor, the way Luke describes Paul's journeys in Asia Minor provide unrivaled evidence of travel conditions, road conditions, communications during that time. And then it's sea travel. His account of Paul's stormy voyage to Italy and the shipwreck at Malta has long been recognized as a valuable document for our knowledge of seafaring in the Greco-Roman world. So he's contributing really to, to other knowledge. His, I mean, his primary purpose, obviously, is to, to speak to the Greek Christians, the Gentile Christians, but um, those accounts are accurate, detailed and accurate. So, we've talked about him quite a bit. How would we describe him? He's a physician, he's a traveler, he's a sailor, he's a missionary, he's a historian, he's an author, he's a teacher. Kind of the Renaissance man before Renaissance times. Uh, just really a, a kind of a, a fascinating uh, process to think through all the things that he did and then was able to write about uh, with great accuracy. So, I want to talk about him just for a minute as a teacher and then talk about the book of Acts as a, uh, as a textbook and think about it in that way for a minute. So again, I mean, there's folks in here who teach for a living. I just do it part-time. But, uh, you know, if you, if you think about, and you've heard this. I mean, even if, if you've never heard of William Glasser, and I'm not going to take the time to talk about William Glasser and who he is and all that, but... If you've never heard of William Glasser, you've heard of his hierarchy of learning. So this is how people learn. Um, Ten <clears> percent <throat> of what we read, twenty percent of what we hear. Mark tells us on Sunday, turn, turn with, turn with me in your Bible. You know, he's trying to get to the read and hear, <laughs> at least. Um, 70% of what's discussed with others, 80% of what we've experienced, 95% of what we teach someone else. Luke did all of that. He saw what Paul was doing. He traveled with Paul. And then he turned around and he wrote these books to teach it to someone else. It's really, um, I don't know that I appreciated Luke as much before I did the study as, as I, I know I didn't. I know I appreciate him a lot more now than I, than I did before. So y'all probably heard this. I guarantee you every resident in every veterinary college in North America hears this. And I'm going to make an educated guess and say most MD residents do too. This is kind of from day one they're told. You see one, you do one, you teach one. See one, do one, teach one. That's kind of what Luke has done. And that's... Kind of why I'm, I'm getting around to with talking about Acts as the textbook is that maybe we need to look at that a little bit differently in order for us to do better at, at this kind of thing. And, you know, I say that, that, that residents in, in veterinary colleges, residents in medical colleges are told this, and they're, 
the, the senior students, senior veterinary students, senior medical students pick up on this. They hear it all the time, too, because they're dealing with the residents. But this is, you know, this is not a new idea. Where did this first originate that I can, as far as I can tell? Anybody want to take a... I'll have, to, I'll have to give my son Joshua credit for this one. He, he, uh, he showed me this one. It's not new. In Ezra 7, verse 10, this is what Ezra said he was going to do. I'm going to study the law. I'm going to do the law. I'm going to teach the law. Um, and that's what, that's what Luke has done. Okay. So, if Luke is ultimately a teacher who may have had the book market in mind, let's think about Acts as a textbook real briefly. Before I, say, before I show the last slide, um, from, from the textbook market thing, let me just make a comment. I said earlier that, you know, you go to Polishing the Pulpit or you go to any kind of seminar and folks are selling books and they're not making just boatloads of money on it, typically. If you're in the textbook world, you need to be doing English books and history books so you can sell one to every uh, incoming freshman at every university in the country. If you're like me and you're trying to write a book about pig diseases, there's only, <laughs> there's only about 4,000 new veterinary students every year and most of them aren't going to buy pig books. <laughs> They're not, that one is not a moneymaker. So, if we think about Acts as a textbook, if, if Luke was writing this as an educational tool, then what are the major themes? I started to lug them in here, but they're just too heavy. I've got you know, diseases of swine. I've got large animal internal medicine, and they're, they're this thick. And again, there are not that many people buy them. But if you look at the table of contents, they're in sections, and it'll be neonatology, virology, bacteriology, uh, clinical medicine, clinical practice, or something like that. You know, that'll be the breakdown, and then under the various uh, headings, under the various sections, then you've got all the chapters. So we've got the 28 chapters of Acts that aren't necessarily titled for us and weren't necessarily put at the best breakpoint. <laughs> But what would be the overall themes, the major themes of the book of Acts? 7.02, we've got eight minutes. Somebody's going to have to speak up. Or Mark will be singing again. Christ's life. The life of Christ. Yeah, yeah. Which would have been more in Luke yeah. than Acts. But yeah, the Acts would be more, you know, the... After the you know after the resurrection, but yeah, the last days of his life, yeah. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit definitely. Somebody said something over here. Church. Yeah, the history of the church. The thirty, the first thirty years, absolutely. Yeah, those would be three of them. Anybody else? Conversions. Conversions. Yeah. I've got five, and we've, I think we've mentioned four of them. Yeah, Mark, at the, you know, one of the early lessons talked about 
the different names, the different uh, names we apply to the book of Acts. That, uh, you know, over time, folks have taught, called it the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts, I've seen it called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The book of conversions. Well, you had a whole bunch of them. Gentiles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, well, let's just look at my list. So we get more in-depth analysis or more in-depth discussion of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts than we do anywhere else. From, you know, right at the beginning, chapter 1, uh, on through. The defense of the faith. So Stephen's speech, Peter's speech, some of Paul's speeches. I read somewhere that Luke records more speeches or pre sermons, I, I suppose you could say. <laughs> now, you know, in the Gospels you get you know, the Jesus teaching, and sometimes that was in quote a sermon setting, sometimes it wasn't, but uh, Luke does record a lot of sermons. So the defense of the faith. The method and themes of Christian preaching. You know, these are early preachers. Again, I mentioned Stephen, Peter, Paul. Conversion and salvation. Somebody mentioned conversion. And we call it the book of conversions. But it really, it's, it's about how to obtain salvation. It's being converted, but then going further and obtaining salvation. And then if you wanted to tell somebody where to go to figure out how to be a missionary, where, where would you send them? Yeah, I mean, this is where we get all the detail about Paul's missionary journeys. Now, Paul alludes to them in his epistles, but this is where the details are given in the book of Acts. Okay. I think that is it. Any comments? We've got about five minutes. Anybody else want to say something about the book of Acts? Stephen Mark Eden wrote a book on the Pauline method of missionary work, and it's uh, your last point there is what he talked about. That's the proper way to do missionary work, the way Paul did it. Yeah. Anybody else? Well, we'll let Mark talk now. <laughs> well, Yeah, Luke's recorded Peter, yeah, yeah. Peter, Peter lays out the death, you know, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then he comes back around and makes application, you know, by, uh, they ask the question, what do we need to do? And he said, well, revenge, we've baptized. And then not only uh, did he make application in regard to that, you know, he, he teaches them how to live even afterward when you go on through uh, persuasion. I just sort of talking about some of these off the top of my head. With many other words, he did testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from the Son of the Lord generation. You know, all of that is in the sermon and in the uh, 
you know, fits under the method and themes of the, of the preaching that is that is being done, especially on the day of Pentecost, where you've got it. But you see it repeated in Acts chapter three with uh, Paul. I mean, Brother Peter laying it out again, you know, and you see the similar things that Paul does later on when he is uh, when we get glimpses of his lessons and sermons. Uh, a good way to start out with. You know, Acts chapter 17, when Paul is talking about uh, walking through the city and seeing all of their uh, various idols and so forth, you know, he, he takes their culture and begins to you know, deal with uh, the truth of God's Word. So uh, it's, it's a very fascinating book. That's one of the, one of the books that we studied in uh, uh, Brother Winkler's classes, one of his classes. It's expository preaching from Acts. And, you know, he, he went through and he pointed out many of those things as we were uh, just students, you know, learning learning how to preach. But, uh, you know, of course, he would approach it from the from the standpoints of the methods uh, because it was a preaching class itself in regard to the book of Acts. But, uh, all, all of these things are, you know, pretty well uh, that they're defined not, not here's a heading, here's a heading, here's a heading, but they're very, very defined within the book itself. Yeah, so. yeah. The themes are prominent, even though, you know, like you say, that we don't have section headings unless yeah. somebody's added them in. But and, and then not only methods and themes of the preaching, but also methods of the church, Acts chapter 6, where you've got the problem with the uh, Grecian widows. I meant to put church governance on there, but yeah. So you've got, you've got all of those things as well. Yeah. Well, church cooperation, yeah. That, that's why we spent every how many weeks it is, and we're only in, you know, verse number eight. Yeah. Well, it's pretty amazing, really, to think about Peter, or, I'm sorry, Luke following Peter and Paul around. I mean, the, what is it, up to about 10 or chapter 10 or 11, it's mostly Peter, and then it shifts to Paul, and Luke got to see all that right. and record it accurately. It, it's really a pretty amazing book. So, anything else? All right. Well, we're about a minute short of the bell, so I think I'll just hush.